Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this fourth of four podcasts is Dr. Michael Jacobson, co-founder and executive director of the Center for Science and Public Interest, nonprofit health advocacy organization in Washington, D.C. Um, Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kelly. In, in all the history of the Rudd Center, we've recorded lots of podcasts, but never four with one person. So I, I admire how much you know and how many things you can talk about. And we could go way beyond four, to be sure. But the topic of this one is on food additives. And I know that this is an issue uh, about which you care deeply. Um, there aren't that many people looking into it, so it's nice that you are. So let's start off with uh, trying to paint a picture of what the modern food supply looks like and how when you talk about food additives, what are you talking about and how present are they in the food supply? Well, food additives are all those ingredients that you don't know about listed on food labels. Um, sodium pantothenate and guar, guar gum, gum arabic, and sodium benzoate, all those chemical names, most of which were uh, introduced to foods after World War II when our food supply really became industrialized when we had more and more frozen foods, dried foods, um, we were eating out more, and foods had to be uh, preserved at restaurants. Um, and then there's some familiar ingredients, and um, some of the biggest problems are from the familiar ingredients, like sugar and salt, uh, substances uh, that are not a problem in small amounts, but large amounts can be deadly. Um, I think people... Um, Fear the unknown, and when you see these ingredients on labels, you think, oh, my God, am I eating calcium propionate? And it turns out that most food additives are perfectly safe, and some are even healthful, like the vitamins and minerals. Calcium propionate prevents mold growth on bread, and it adds a little calcium to the diet. You know, so that one's fine. Um, there's some problem food additives. Uh, Currently, I, th I think some of the biggest problems are, f are food dyes, things like uh, red dye number 40, yellow 5, yellow 6. Uh, yellow 5 and 6, the second and third most widely used dyes, are contaminated with cancer-causing chemicals, um, not the kind of thing that should be on the market. And one of the reasons, one of, one of the things I've in, in, uh, liked about studying food additives over the years is that they are interesting probes to see how government and industry react when you say, this is a problem, something very specific, and it's something that could be uh, banned or labeled or, or controlled in some way. Inevitably, there's huge resistance to making any changes. So these food dyes cause cancer. Uh, red dye number three, the FDA... 25 years ago, said it causes cancer and should be banned. The, the Michigan f uh, uh, fruit industry, makers of cherries, maraschino cherries, dyed with red dye, went to the Department of Agriculture, and the Secretary of Agriculture told the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, don't ban that chemical, red three, because this industry needs it. And the Department of Health and Human Services said, okay. That was during the Reagan administration. Um, 
And that's a particularly glaring example. Food dyes also, not just cancer, they cause hyperactivity in, in some kids. And just on that grounds should be eliminated from the food supply. So let's talk for a moment about why, the, why these things are in the food supply. It sounds like some things might be necessary, like to prevent the growth of mold, for example. But there are other things like colorings and colorings, things that might be completely unnecessary. We've gotten used to brightly colored food. That's right. And, you know, I think two of the problems with food additives are, A, health concerns about some, but also even safe additives could be used and are being used to produce unhealthy foods. You know, so even if, say, colorings and flavorings were perfectly safe, they're used to produce... Uh, soft drinks, um, huge numbers of snacks for kids, cheap ice creams. They're used to very often to simulate the presence of more expensive ingredients. So colorings and flavorings equals fruit juice. And so if you think of all the fruit-flavored products out there, colorings and flavorings make them possible. Um, Thickening agents uh, allow a company to simulate a thicker, richer food like ice cream, say, the cream and ice cream, um, without using the expensive ingredients. One of the kind of mo- most interesting food additives that isn't listed on labels is air. Cheap ice creams are 50% air. It's whipped into them, and it really holds down the costs. They don't have to use uh, milk, cream, sugar, uh, and uh, eggs in some cases. Uh, Water can be used kind of like a food additive, more an ingredient. Well, this is sort of a tongue-in-cheek comment, but the the beverage industry has been great at getting people to pay for water. I wonder if sometime they'll get people to pay for air. <laughs> well, the ice cream industry has figured it out. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, but I think the you know so the, so it's economic fraud in some cases, and sometimes health harm. I think one of the the more interesting two is you know we've had some battles over a couple of food additives. One is Olestra, the fake fat that makes people sick, causes diarrhea. Um, and it's something industry even acknowledged. Their own studies showed it. Uh, the, in, the Food and Drug Administration allowed it. And we were able, in that case, to generate so much bad publicity that Olestra is basically dead in the marketplace. Procter & Gamble and Frito-Lay still market some, some chips, but they, these companies envision multi-billion dollar markets. Another food additive or ingredient that's similar is it's present in in a brand of so-called health foods called corn, Q-U-O-R-N. You'll find it in Whole Foods, some other major supermarkets, that's a a meat substitute, fake meat, fake beef, fake chicken, um, that causes severe allergic reactions. And again, it was the company's own test that first showed that. Um, people can experience vomiting so so severe that it breaks blood vessels in their throat or their eyes. It can cause hives, anaphylactic reactions, can can uh, life threatening reactions. The FDA should ban it. The FDA's position: this the company the FDA agrees with the company that this ingredient is generally recognized as safe. And there's unfettered marketing. It's a fungus. 
And the fungus's Latin name is Fusarium venenatum. Venenatum means venomous, as I'm sure your listeners know. Um, and it's, it's a crazy ingredient. It's crazy. The government has intentionally approved a new allergen. And the frequency of allergic reactions is greater than that of peanuts, shellfish, any of these other common food, food uh, uh, allergens. So, you know, again, it's uh, seeing how the government regulates, seeing how industry self-regulates. Is there a warning notice that the company put on the package? No. No, because that might hurt sales. So a question I have about safety, and I'd just like to end with this and then one other question, is um, as such that when, these, when, when we talk about these things being safe, the, the, certainly toxicology studies and things like that might show that they're safe in the short run. But would we even know if chronic use of these sort of things, like 20 or 30 years of use of these things, leads some to negative health outcome? Would we even know? Are those things even being studied? And it also seems like the other unknown thing is about what these things do to the brain, not in terms of creating some disease, but are they triggering overeating? Do they, are they thwarting the brain's satiety mechanisms and things like that? And it seems to me that we know almost nothing about that. That's right. We know very little. Um, it's some, um, there's little human research on food additives for long-term effects. The only thing you could pick up in humans is immediate reactions. So um, with Olestra, the, the diarrhea with this corn ingredient, it's vomiting. Um, and those can be linked to the foods. But if something causes uh, cancer, say, that can only be uh, deduced through animal studies. And some rudimentary animal studies are done. They're pretty crude. They use 50 or 100 animals per group. Um, so they, they could be causing some... Uh, you know, who knows what, cancer, Parkinson's disease, things that might not show up in animal studies. So this would be that we could do another 10 podcasts on what I'm about to ask you, but if you could quickly say what, what do you think needs to be done? Well, neurotoxicity studies ought to be a, a significant part of the animal research, um, and you can learn a certain amount from that. Uh, there should be post-marketing evaluations to see if once an additive gets into the market, are there any effects uh, that otherwise wouldn't be detected? Uh, companies can declare a f uh, an ingredient to be grass, generally recognized as safe, and put it onto the market without even notifying the Food and Drug Administration. That needs to be stopped. Okay. Well, let's hope that some of these advances occur in the future to protect people from what might be some pretty unhealthy effects. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very, very much, Kelly, for having me. I've enjoyed it. Okay, our guest was Dr. Michael Jacobson, co-founder and executive director of the Center for Science in the Public Interest. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, for a variety of resources on food policy issues. Thank you.